Welcome to Protest and Survive number three. I'm your host, Reed Dunley. In this podcast, we have conversations with people who do both creative work and activist work. In episodes number one and two of this podcast, we spoke with two different activist punks. But in this episode, we're pivoting to a music scene I didn't get into until much later in life, techno. Frankie DeKaiser Hutchinson is one third of Disc Woman. Disc Woman is a New York-based collective, booking agency, and event platform representing and showcasing female talent in the electronic music community. Frankie co-founded Disc Woman in 2012, and they represent producers and DJs who play music that sound like this track from co-founder Um Fang. Okay. 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 In addition to Frankie's work to create more and better opportunities for women in techno, Frankie was instrumental in striking down a New York City law. The cabaret law effectively made dancing in New York illegal. It was enacted in 1926 as a means to segregate Harlem jazz clubs where white and black artists and music lovers were dancing to jazz together. Throughout the years, it was used to fine and sometimes shut down clubs in New York. It was notably used against gay clubs in the 90s under Mayor Rudy Giuliani. In this interview, Frankie tells us the story of the grassroots effort her and her friends in the Dance Liberation Network led to repeal the law almost a century after it began, with the help of a progressive city council member and a mayor willing to embrace a populist win. We conducted this interview at my kitchen table in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. We talk about growing up in England, learning about race in America, the origins of Disc Woman, the New York club scene, and what it feels like to affect change. A big thanks to Katie Ann Gonzalez for all her help selecting the music for this episode. If you feel so inclined to send any financial support our way, you can do so at anchor.fm slash protest and survive. Here is Frankie DeKaiser Hutchinson on Protest and Survive. What was it like growing up in England and why did you move to the United States and do you like going back? I don't particularly enjoy going back. I don't I wouldn't say I particularly enjoyed growing up there very much. I had quite a hard childhood. But those things kind of shape you and like I you know, as cheesy as, as it sounds, like if I hadn't had those experiences, you know, like I grew up in a single parent household, my mother who worked like two jobs at a time or two to three or something like that, supporting me and my brother, like those kind of seeing a mom in those sort of positions, like really like has a huge impact on like how you see the world and how you treat people and what's important to you. And it's like a direct correlation between like that perspective and like being like what I'm doing right now, you know. Um, so I'm always thankful for like that. And I'm always thankful for like having such a strong, like, um, mom and someone who's really stood by me the entire time and has celebrated me constantly, you know, like I can't be more grateful for that. However, like England itself and the context in that place is just like, it's fucking hard for people of color there. Like it's not, it's exceptionally racist and, um, it's hard to really say for me like now whether how much it's changed considering where it's at at the moment. Like, it's just like, what the fuck? Like, um, it makes me feel like, uh, I don't know, there's a real sadness to the place. Um, but there's so many moments of beauty. I do enjoy going back to London, but 
I just, I, I think I've just lost a connection to the place, like an emotional one. Not emotional, but like, I mean, there is just no way I'd ever move back there. Like, and you know, that's a position, like a privilege that I hold where I don't have to be there. Um, so I kind of hate bashing it because I know some people can't, can't really leave that situation. Not that it's like horrible, but you know what I'm saying. But like during university at the beginning of it, my mom moved to the States and she remarried. And, um, through that, she was able to get me a green card because I was still under 21 at the time. And, uh, that was just like, I mean, the luckiest thing like in the world, like for me at that time. And I'd already like thought about how much I wanted to move to America and probably for like really stupid reasons. Do you know what I mean? Um, but I did, and uh, and you were already studying. I was. American I studied. Stuff, I studied. Right? I studied American studies. So sad. <laughs> real fan. <laughs> real, real big fan. I did American studies because they promised you go to America for a year abroad program. That's the only reason why I did the whole degree. That year abroad, like, was just like so transformative for me. Like, I, I just that's where I learned everything about like race, like. Completely. I had no idea of any language around like white supremacy and like just like connecting that to the way I felt as a child, like growing up and just feeling completely ugly and like unattractive as like a young black girl, like in a predominantly white place, like was extremely hard to uh, process, but super important. And just like I went to, I did a year abroad at Santa Cruz University, which is like, you know, one of the I mean, it's, like, so ridiculously, like, uh, what do you call it? Liberal, I guess. I don't know how to put it, but... I mean, Angela Davis teaches there sometimes. That's just, like, a barometer of, like, kind of, like, classes that they have there. But I just read so much there, like, so many, like, great books. And that was just in the library, you know? And in my university library at Sussex, there was not anything, like, close to that there was no relatable perspectives for me to cling on to so I just like didn't really connect with any of it nothing like issues about slavery and stuff like that which is just like so I mean learning about slavery is learning about your experience as a black person just in general do you know what I mean like you need to know that stuff and like coming back to Sussex after learning like that I was just like really just had all my weapons basically I was just ready to fire like every single white friend I had I was so angry <laughs> but they no one was ready for that I mean it's like in their defense like I mean they hadn't been taught anything either so I'm like coming back and being like you're racist you're racist you're racist but they're like we're not racist because they don't understand you know what I mean like so it was really aggressive for them um not that I regret any of it uh but, you know, I wasn't met with, like, open arms, <laughs> let's put it that way. I felt really isolated. No one liked me. <laughs> um, and uh, it was, like, it was a really tough time. I fell out with so many people. I mean, and at, at one point in university, like, I felt like I was a quite a popular person, but that really dwindled, like, when I started talking about, like, race and stuff. Like, there was no one around. I didn't go to my graduation. I was just like, fuck this shit. Did you find any sort of, like, language barrier between living in England and living in the United States? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think... Um, 
<laughs> no, <laughs> but <laughs> there's definitely certain like words and stuff. I think more people look at me like I'm a freak than the other way around. If you know what I mean, like. I mean, growing up in England, like, so much of your popular culture is so Americanized anyway. It's like, I'm so familiar with what people say. But when you come here, there isn't the same kind of relationship, you know, uh, dynamic, let's say. You know, people think it's strange. But, I mean, another layer on that is that, like, you know, often people don't have much of an understanding that there are even black people in England from America, you know. They think it's just, like, white English people who, like, are kind of, like, Hugh Grant-ish kind of types. I mean, because that's what's sort of exported over there, you know, like, those kind of images. <laughs> so I think, I like... I did think that. <laughs> right, exactly. I think it's really common. So I think... I thought it was, like, about a boy. Yeah, about a boy everywhere, everywhere exactly. <laughs> and it's not about a boy everywhere. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Like, London is, like, extraordinarily, like, diverse and wonderful like in that way i think it really trumps like people's expectations when you kind of uh, uh like a black british person they're like what the hell is this but but i think it's changed a bit now um like i think there's been more like black british actors in popular popular culture and sort of like black british music and stuff like that and uh i don't i don't it's hard for me to say but i i would say there's just been more representation of that, like, perspective. Tell me about, like, what Disc Woman is and what, what you guys do. Well, Disc Woman it started in 2014. Me and Emma Umfang, we kind of met, became super fast friends. Like, everything kind of just, like, changed, honestly. sort of like supporting each other so quickly and just sort of like this sort of love you know and I was actually speaking about this in like therapy today too the sort of love between us we kind of like wanted to take it elsewhere you know and like how can we support other people like there's so many women doing great things in our community like how can we do something let's platform these women it just sort of like just kept on snowballing so I'll tell you what And so we had both been regulars at Boston Over. Um, we asked John Barclay if we could do a two-day women's festival there, and he said yes. And then I had worked with Christine like prior, like uh, on some event stuff. Um, and I knew she was super organised and like just like a great like event producer. So I asked her to help, and then that's kind of just like how it kind of started. And then after that, it just became um, this bigger thing like bigger than we anticipated I wasn't expecting it to be like my job forever <laughs> well let's hope it's for a long time I'm not sure about forever but at least for a little bit longer but it was great I mean it was just so exciting but you know the, the beginning it was just really hard to monetize that so we did so much shit that was just like for free all the time um, you know, we had artists play for free and then, you know, we realised we had to really shift that approach because, you know, paying women is actually, like, one of the most political things you can really do. Um, so we changed that and then that's when we kind of started developing ideas about the agency and decided that that could be really, like, interesting and important work for us to, like, you know, haggle and sort of... Uh, barter for women and sort of protect them like from 
uh, exploitative, like for promoters and yada, yada, yada. And it's probably, you know, the part of the business I'm probably most proud of. And um, we, you know, have worked like super hard to make it like super professional, like Christine and I, like specifically. And, um, you know, we're just really trying to find ways to like survive and like be able to sort of pay ourselves and like do this kind of stuff and it's hard but you know we just like love what we love it you know it's it's a blessing to be able to keep a good relationship with each other and keep on like producing stuff for people who don't really have much like knowledge or experience of like what scene you guys mm-hmm. are in and what like the electronic music mm-hmm. scene is generally. Can you explain a bit of like the landscape of what that was when you guys are starting mm-hmm. and like what you guys were really trying to address as starting mm-hmm. something like this? I mean, obviously it was like overwhelmingly like men being booked, white men being booked, white men playing techno. But like there wasn't the same conversations happening around DJs and payments and all this kind of stuff. It just felt kind of flat, honestly, and not that, like, interesting. At least to me, there just seemed a really, like, unevenness in, like, what was happening. And, like, it was just meeting so many interesting, like, women doing interesting things. I was like, why are we not, like, pushing these people? Like, you know, so let's push them and... um and I think, you know, that kind of approach has um, a domino effect and people want to keep on pushing that and that's really cool. But, you know, it's also, like, I think interesting, like, I mean, I've been into techno for a long time, but without really much knowledge of its history, like, at all, which was also a big, like, transformative part for me too, like, similar to when I was in Santa Cruz and learning about race, like, learning, like, that, like, techno is from Detroit and, like, black people and like da 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 was like huge moment for me like and something that Emma told me like and like uh, me feeling kind of angry that that kind of information like hadn't been told to me like why wouldn't you teach somebody that like it's so cool and like a young black person hearing that these like cool like black people are making this amazing music in Detroit like that's so awesome like wow like what a way what a thing to look up to but like why am I here like almost 30 just finding out about that stuff So that made me like really angry, uh, but also just like, let's push it, you know? And like, you know, at that time in <laughs> in Bushwick, there wasn't really any like, um, well, to my knowledge, uh, black women playing like techno music. Um, uh, and I don't think it's because we weren't interested. I just think that, you know, there's just like, uh, no, like like a lack of confidence like around it or an attachment to it. I mean, once like, something gets kind of like monopolized by like white dude culture, it's like, it's kind of becomes out of your grasp a bit. So, you know, part of like, I mean, my personal mission has been to kind of like uh, bring it back a little bit. Yeah. Are you <clears throat> happy with where this woman is at right now? And like, do you have any grand goals for like 
where you wanted to go? I am happy where it is right now. I'm actually very happy and I'm actually like feel it's nice to be in a position where I feel confident at my job. And also like I'm never really that scared to fuck up really sometimes. Like I fucked up so many times to the point where it's like, what's really the worst that's going to happen over a DJ gig? Like really, you know, like, come on, like it's a party, like, like losing sleep over these kind of things is just not worth it. You know, like sometimes things have to get cancelled. Okay. We'll all live the next day, you know. And being able to sort of troubleshoot like that is great. So I'm really happy, like, uh, in that respect. I mean, it's hard, you know, like, it's a lot of pressure. And, like, I can't really fall down because it's just, like, there's just so much, so many people depending on you, you know. So it can be, you know, quite tense at times. but But I also, like really enjoy that element of it too um I don't know but I also feel like you kind of like teach yourself to like working yourself to the ground is like great we're just like that's not how life should be really (laughs) but in New York that's kind of like what's good what that's how you should be otherwise you're not really doing anything at all but yeah I think um where we want to go I mean I think we just want to like expand more on the agency stuff um, and just, you know, develop sustainable ways for us to survive because um, that's definitely, like, a hard part of it. It's, like, the financial aspect of it, obviously. Like, surprise, surprise. But, you know, we'll do our best and survive as long as we can. I feel like, you know, we've worked so hard and I'm super proud of everything that we've done and we do. And, um, you know, we will last for as long as we can and hopefully it will be a really long time. But, you know... Sometimes you can't always control these things, so that's kind of like the way I treat it. Just feel lucky to do it in the day and see what tomorrow brings, kind of. When's the first time that you heard the uh, two words cabaret law? <laughs> um, God, when did I hear that? I've been quite familiar with it before Trump was elected. Like, that's the only timeline I can, like, remember from when we started. Unfortunately, it's, like, when he was elected. And me and John had, he talked about it a bit, you know, and because they'd been fined for cabaret law before, and it's definitely something we'd think about, but I never really thought about it and something that I would be involved in, do you know what I mean? Um, and also, like, changing a law just feels, like, ridiculous, do you know what I mean? Like, as someone who's, like, getting drunk at Boston every night, it's like, what the hell am I going to do, you know? But then, you know, after Trump was elected, like, everything really shifted. Like, everybody wanted to do stuff, you know? And, like, what can we do? Anything. And uh, that seemed like something tangible. Um, and so we did it. That. <laughs> Was that simple? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And here we are. And here we are. (laughs) Interview's over. For folks who don't know, what what is the cabaret law? And can you tell me a bit about the history of it if you feel like it? It's like I had the spiel (laughs) down so well. The talking points. Yeah, the talking (laughs) points so well. The cabaret law was put in place in 1926. I think 26. Like, fact check me. No, I think I read those talking points too. We've all like read them enough times. We were all like so well versed. Now I'm so fucking rusty on it. Um, Rudy Giuliani yeah, was Rudy shutting Giuliani. down the gay clubs <laughs> exactly, in the 90s. Exactly. What happened? Yeah, it was like put in place. Remember Giuliani? <laughs> yeah. How can we forget? He doesn't let us forget him, does he? <laughs> Can't believe he's still around. It's fucking so sad. It's like, how do you sleep at night? It's fucking crazy to me. 
Um, but yeah, that was put in place in 1926 as a way to kind of like separate like uh, blacks and whites in Harlem from dancing in the same place. So it required places to like have a license to dance. And the, you know, the law transformed like over the years. But it was really weaponized in the 90s, like through Giuliani, and he shut down a bunch of clubs, like da da da, and kind of decimated like nightlife in New York City for a while. I wouldn't say it's been super enforced since that, but like for a small club like Bossa for to sort of incur a fight over that, that's a huge hit like for a small venue, you know. So because it got to the point where only like a hundred places or something. Yeah, had it, I had it. And and it's just like absurd. For like, a, having a, a license to dance is just absurd, like in any like way to put it. Like that's so ridiculous. Like, and then I think also like I feel like you guys did a good point of being like also whether or not this <clears throat> there's that logistic mm-hmm. aspect of mm-hmm. why it's absurd, but it's also like just given the fact that this was like founded in yeah, exactly, exactly, like, why exactly, the fuck exactly. Would you have exactly. Why would you still keep this around, precisely? Yeah. And like, use it when you feel like. Absolutely, it. and like you know, when Julian did it, it targeted so many like queer clubs too. Like it was just like used against like minority groups. There was many different layers of the argument that were just like absurd, and it's really hard to argue back on them, really, because it's so ridiculous. You know, part of the reason why we were sort of successful in getting it repealed, I think was, you know, having like a relatively more progressive mayor in place, like helped a lot, emphasis on relative. Also, there just being this kind of like shift to want to do stuff in New York City, it was the right time because people had tried before having Rafa Espinal, like council member, take it over. Like he was really great and it just like was the right timing for everything. And we came correct and it was just... It was like over way faster than we thought it was going to be, you know, um, so it was great. In addition to those factors that made it possible to do it, like how did you guys get from, you know, you and John talking about this to like building a, you know, small like movement around it? Right. Well, we kind of like thought of folks that we think would be interested in participating. And um, I'd say it was mainly me, John and Nikki Brown, who kind of like did the core kind of organizing within our like dance liberation like thing. And then there was also the Artist Coalition who were separate, but they were kind of organizing around stuff related to like artists in New York City. So they were already doing stuff. They weren't, I think we, God, I can't really remember now. I think John went to like their meeting and brought it up and then they decided they wanted to help organize around. And they were super helpful and like, just like super on it and like, went to everything and like you know we're happy to produce a bunch of resources for it and like having that kind of support was really great and um, I think having us you know who kind of were maybe a little bit more connected to nightlife really helped too there was a real broad spectrum of folks and then once we we did like this big town hall in um, a market hotel and Rafael Espinal came to that and then he decided he was going to help us with it after that meeting and then that's when kind of things elevated again. And then after that, 
That was a crowded meeting. Too. Yeah, a really crowded meeting. Like, like that was a few awesome. hundred people there. Yeah, it was really mad. It was really cool because I think everyone was also again on that tip of like wanting to change stuff, you know. And uh, after that, like he was able to get us like oh god, I can't remember like a hearing at the city hall. With the power of everyone in the room, we hope to apply the pressure needed for the mayor's office and city council to recognise this law needs to be repealed. Laws historically used to oppress people should have no place in this city and society in general. This law cannot be divorced from the history of racism in this country. And for New York City to be one of the only cities in the world holding on to this, a city whose reputation is built on the back of its artists, is an embarrassment to say the least. And like a bunch of people could come and sort of say why they wanted the cabaret law to be repealed. And uh, there was just so many people there. Like, it was crazy. Like, I mean, I, you know, it went for like four or five hours just of people talking about why they should. It's like ridiculous. We're all talking about how we should be allowed to dance without a law. Like, and I think that is just like, I think just, and I think maybe that happened twice or something. I can't honestly I think completely it remember yeah, the timeline. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we went through it twice. And, I think it's just like, come on, guys. Do you want to do this again? Because I don't want to sit here and listen to why people love dance so much. Like, Jesus Christ, it's not that interesting. You know what I mean? <laughs> but let's just, like, get this done. And then, you know, the bill was introduced and, the, you know, and then, um, I mean, it was passed. And then that was really, like, it. Well, it's not it, but you know what I mean. It was, just, it was kind of, like, quite a quick process yeah relative to other bills being passed i feel like it was quite quick maybe like february to october mm-hmm. which is like so quick because i think we were expecting it to be a lot longer of a fight so tonight by repealing the cabaret law we are declaring that this can't and will not continue no longer will a license to allow dancing be used to silence communities a lot of what you're saying, I think that's so true. It's like people wanted to do something. Yeah. I mean, I remember being in like meetings of people who were like, we want to do something yeah. and no one knew exactly what to do. And we were like, well, there's like this yeah. thing we can work on that. Yeah, you know? exactly. And like, <clears throat> and it's close to home and it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Whatever. And like, yeah, like talking about someone like de Blasio where it's like he mm-hmm. has these progressive ideas, yeah. but he doesn't really put like a lot of work always behind like building these progressive ideas and then when you guys were like here's a a bunch of people why why wouldn't you exactly it's a perfect thing for him you know what i mean it's like he's not gonna say no come on yeah he could not yeah (laughs) you know and he looks great for doing it do you know what i mean so go for it please take it use it for what you want to use it for the blasio like i I have no idea how sincere you are. I really can't grasp it. But if you can repeal this, sure. Like, this, I'll fucking take it. Like, honestly. It took a lot of work. It took people a long, long time. But it's one of these moments when you can say your voices were heard. And you fought hard and you fought for a good cause. So why don't everyone give each other a round of applause? How did you guys, you know, that obviously took like a lot of legwork and logistics mm-hmm. and stuff. Like, how do you get people to come down to like City Hall and sit there for four hours? I mean, how did you guys like do the work to kind of like build I, this mass really of people? People are really excited about it. It's just, I mean, for all like 
rave of people. Like it was such a you know unique experience being able to also be in City Hall and do it. Yeah. Like, that was like definitely was really like, a fun, to, exciting. It was really funny to see people in like a button up. Yeah, shirt. like it was like, cool. What? Like you know, uh, I don't think it was actually that difficult. Like people really cared, and like we do care about like having <laughs> spaces we can dance in legally. Like it hits close to home. It's kind of adventurous. Like I don't know, it was fun. Yeah. And I thought also thought it was fun to see like within your guys's like coalition this like kind of like intergenerational party absolutely. people. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's like yeah, people absolutely. who have been like partying in New York in the nineties yeah. and people who are partying. It in was New York such now a mixed bag, like seriously. <laughs> Do you guys all keep in touch and stuff? Do you see those I people? I wouldn't much? say so, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean socially we're not like gonna remain friends like that. But always like remember the whole time with them in fond ways, like and it's also again like humbling to be around like people who aren't just like the same age as you and like into the same things. Like other people care about this shit too, you know. And it is right, really nice being around a diversity of age, you know. And um, that was cool. That was really cool. What did it feel like when you guys got that, the word that you had actually wanted? <laughs> just like what us, <laughs> you know. And then I think we just like went to a rave or something afterwards. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. It was really mad. Like. You know, you never think you're really going to overturn, like, a law. Especially one that's been around for 90 years. I mean, that's absurd. Like, like, how the hell did this happen? It was hard to believe, but also, like, it shouldn't be hard to believe. This law's ridiculous. Like, it's embarrassing. And I think, I think one of the things was it became embarrassing for the city. And, like, that's why they started to care. And, like, when you start putting race on it and stuff like that, they're just like, this is... I'm getting all this press about it. <laughs> calling it a racist law it's like you call it just cut it like quick because it's just gonna you know you don't want those connected like and uh so it felt good it felt really really good it felt like you could change something and that's something that people needed to need reminded of you know like we do have some power as kind of like you know relatively trivial this issue might be to like actual things that like need to change in like our society this is empowering you know it's very empowering that yeah. people care yeah